But one of the biggest challenges that prevents people from changing is they believe that they're broken and can't change. So just start from the belief there's, there's not something quote unquote wrong with you. And this is supported by the neuroscience. You are not broken and you don't need to be fixed. Today, we're talking nerdy about the neuroscience of habit formation, and not just behavioral habits like reaching for your phone first thing in the morning or eating a cookie every time you feel sad, but also cognitive habits and patterns of thinking, like, for example, why you might be getting stuck in the habit of using self-criticism as a form of motivation. In this conversation I had with Dr. Alex Korb, we dive into why your brain creates and sustains habits even when they suck and what it actually takes to rewire your brain for habits of thinking and behavior that are truly helpful. Dr. Alex Korb is a neuroscientist, coach, and best-selling author of The Upward Spiral. He has a PhD in neuroscience and is an adjunct assistant professor at UCLA. Not only was this conversation educational and inspirational for me, but it was also really deeply moving. You'll notice at the end that I almost cry. Alex Korb almost made me cry. And that's just a a testament to how freaking amazing and powerful our brain's capacity to change is. So I hope you're ready to dive in, dig deep, and talk nerdy with us. So in addition to all of the amazing things I just shared in the introduction, you were one of my favorite professors at UCLA. And I think that your course, Applied Positive Neuroscience, should be a requisite for any human being being born onto planet Earth as just a basic manual for if you have a brain, this is what you should know about using it and maximizing its potential and helping it work for you rather than against you. And your class, uh, Applied Positive Neuroscience, was based on your book, The Upward Spiral, like a real world lived experience of the book. And so I'm curious if you can share a little bit with me and with listeners why you created the book, why you created the course, your inspiration behind it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the positive feedback. I agree. Everyone should be required to listen to me talk. That's why I try and tell my wife all the time, well, she ever has a problem. I'm like, didn't you read chapter six? That doesn't seem to go over well. But yeah, I created the class because like, I really enjoyed writing the book and I thought it was really helpful, uh, mainly because I I collected all this information through my PhD research and lived experience. And I just felt I, I want to share this information with people. And it wasn't until after I'd written the book that people were interested in hearing me talk about this stuff. And I was like, oh, that's a pleasant surprise because I like talking about it more than I like sitting by myself writing about it. And the head of the department was like, hey, can you create a class that like teaches students some like helpful tips to be less stressed and more focused and happier, but make it like kind of sciencey so that it fulfills a science requirement. And I was like, oh yeah, that's like, that's my jam. So that's how he created the class. And 
I have to admit that <laughs> I appreciate the your your glowing endorsement and introduction that I actually I, I I think I missed the question. I was um curious what the inspiration was behind writing the book. And I I actually already kind of know the answer to this question based on the very first, you know, lecture that you gave in class. But I think that on this podcast, we're going to be talking a lot about mental health in general. We're just at the beginning of recording all the episodes now, but I know that there was like a very personal connection to writing the book and creating the course. And I was curious if you could share that with listeners as well. Yeah. The, the combination of the first lecture and the, the last lecture sort of bookends it. The roots of the book and the course, if I really think about sort of the distal beginnings, I've like always been interested in why we feel things. Like I've always just noticed about myself, I've gotten pretty emotional and I'm also, you know, smart and motivated. And sometimes it feels really easy to get stuff done and focus and be happy. And other times it feels really difficult and that seems to be different for different people. And that's sort of something that's like always fascinated me, perhaps because my mom is a psychiatrist and she's always talked about that stuff. And it wasn't until college where I started studying neuroscience, where I was like, oh, this, this, is, what, this is what explains all of that. And it was in that context where I was working at the UCLA Brain Mapping Center as my first job out of college. And it was really exciting. But unfortunately, the, the sort of story takes sort of a dark turn, an unfortunate turn, because I was also coaching the UCLA Women's Ultimate Frisbee team at the time. And it was like the most fun thing I'd ever done. I had started playing ultimate frisbee competitively in college, and it was just awesome to get to share this sport with new people. And part of I realized what I loved about it is in coaching, well, you're also helping people overcome their own mental barriers and deal with their emotions. And I was like, oh, this is like the stuff I've tried to figure out for myself all of this time. And it's awesome to be able to get to apply it in this real world situation. And then one day, one of the, the girls on the team was her first year. I mean, this is the first year of the team. She shared with me that she was suffering from depression. And her sharing of her experience completely changed my perception of depression because I always used to think that depression kind of happens to people who are going through, you know, terrible situations or who didn't have friends or weren't talented or whatever, but realized from her, like she had a pretty good life. Her parents loved her and were very supportive. She was smart and motivated and talented and friendly and athletic. And 
I realized that just being smart and, and talented and even connected with others doesn't necessarily protect you from depression. But I encouraged her to keep coming to practices and she recognized how beneficial the team was to her well-being and coming to practices and the how how much the exercise was helpful or having a routine but unfortunately it wasn't enough to really save her and the following year she kind of drifted apart and i from the team and when people tried to reach out she was just sort of uh, doing her own thing. I mean, I guess she had, she still had friends that were on the team, but she was just busy with other things. And I didn't know much about her situation, but her depression continued to weigh on her. And ultimately, she ended up taking her own life. And it was a real tragedy and a shock because. Yes, even though I knew that she was depressed from the outside, you couldn't necessarily tell it. Like, she laughed at all of my lame jokes, and she was smiling and, and friendly, but she just had this sort of darkness pulling at her. She was going through treatment for all of this stuff, and I, I couldn't understand, like, well, what are these treatments doing? if they can't help someone like her. And sitting and sort of wrestling with all of those questions, I decided to go to grad school and try and get a PhD in neuroscience, really commit to understanding this stuff on a deeper and more fundamental level to actually understand like what is happening in someone's brain that keeps them stuck in depression, even when objectively or from the outside, they have so many wonderful things going on in their life. And I wanted to understand not only why that happens, but what we could do about it to rescue people from this terrible state to prevent terrible things from happening to other people just like her. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know that it's a really deeply sad but also really moving story and for me the first time I heard it it brought me back to my own roots and I was very depressed as a teenager and when I was 17 I moved to New York City and I found a meditation teacher that I loved and he was teaching in a way that was informed by neuroscience and he's the person who initially introduced me to this concept of neuroplasticity and that was the first time in my life that I I had this moment of hopefulness of, oh my God, I'm I'm capable of changing. Changing is possible. This state of mind, my mental health, the way that my brain works right now is not the way that it always has to be. And that's ultimately the thing that inspired me to study neuroscience too, was this desire to understand myself and and learn how to pull myself out of that through 
taking action and an amalgamation of different things from meditation to psychotherapy to exercising to honestly a lot of the things that you talk about in your book. But I think that it's so powerful to reflect on just how much of an impact a conceptual understanding can facilitate in in enacting change. And what I love so much about your work and what I love so much about your teaching is that it's also applicable and relevant and experiential as well. You know, it's not just these complex topics in neuroscience, although I think you do a phenomenal job making them into bite-sized, easily digestible pieces. But it's also really practical and pragmatic. And one of my favorite, well, I have two favorite lectures from from your course, and I can remember both of them pretty vividly. But in one of your first lectures where you're talking a little bit about neuroanatomy and the striatum, you talked about how a lot of our evolutionary biology is compelling us to participate in the same habits and patterns that we've previously participated in because our brains figure that if we keep doing the same things that we've always done, we'll continue to survive. And even if those habits suck, even if those patterns suck, even if they're not helpful, that there's this fundamental part of us that wants us to be okay. It's just like a little misguided in its direction. So I'm curious if you can share with the listeners what that part of the brain is and what it does. I I know the answer to this, like star student over here, but I know that. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, you raised your hand. Yes, Alec, I'm calling on you. <laughs> they know this is like a dream where you're like, oh, I, I call in my professor's so that I can ask them the questions that I know the answers to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, so, I mean, this is a question that's always, I've always been fascinated by and wondered about, like, why is it that you can be smart and know what goal you're trying to achieve, and yet then you're, you don't do those things? And I was like, but what, like, why? That doesn't make sense. Like, logically, I know I should do X, Y, and Z. And then your actions pull you in another direction. Your emotions pull you in another direction. And that never really made sense to me until I learned how the brain really works. And it comes down to the fact that different parts of your brain want different things. Because your brain didn't all evolve at the same time. And we have some of these old regions that still existed in the dinosaurs. And we have these modern parts that didn't evolve until, you know, 60 million years after that. And they're all mashed together and have to figure out how to work with each other. And one of the biggest drivers of our behaviors the thing that is one of the deepest motivators of our of our actions is this region called the dorsal striatum which sits right above the brain stem so it's really deep in the brain and, and basically in the brain the oldest parts are the deepest because it evolved kind of like a city where the downtown is the first part that was established. That was the oldest parts of the city. And then it expands outward. 
So we have new, you know, modern suburbs in our brain that are at the surface, but the deepest parts are often the most fundamental to who we are. And this part of the brain wants us to keep doing what we've done in the past. And it seems like a strange function of the brain to just sort of keep you stuck in the same patterns. But it makes sense when you think about it in an evolutionary perspective. Because the world is really complex. It's how you're supposed to know what to do to survive. And that's really all of your brain cares about. Like you might care about your happiness and your dreams and your goals, but your the evolutionary pressures on your brain were just to do the things that help you survive and reproduce. And this simple rubric, is that the right word? Rubric, algorithm, I don't know. The simple uh, technique that it evolved was essentially to say, well, I'm alive now, so I guess I should just keep doing whatever I have been doing. And if you just start with that principle, it's really simple to program or get a few cell, brain cells to get an organism to behave in that way. It gets you really far in survival in a complex world. It has limitations, which is why we evolved other more complex brain systems on top of that. But because it was so early on in the development of our brains, it is really crucial to our survival and acts extremely quickly, often outside of our conscious awareness. And while, yes, it might sometimes get in the way, one of the crucial things I think it's important for people to understand is that it helps us way more than it gets in the way. If you had to think about every single action that you had to take and make a conscious choice, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. You'd be completely overwhelmed. Whereas this brain region, the dorsal stratum, helps us get through most of what we need to do just on autopilot so that we can spend the majority of our brain's resources and attention on making the you know more important decisions or more complex decisions. So it's a it's a really essential and it's it's a really useful feature of the brain and it's essential to survival and well-being. Although yes, sometimes at the margins it can get in the way. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about how this region of the brain and this evolutionary compulsion to just do whatever we've done in the past relates to habits and habit formation. Yeah. Well, so this region, the dorsal stratum, is essentially the habit center of the brain because habits are just the tendency to do the same thing over and over. And 
I mean, when we use the word habits colloquially, we sometimes mean these kind of routine automatic behaviors, but we also sometimes mean like impulsive behaviors like, oh, I ate a candy bar and I didn't want to or whatever. And those sort of more impulsive things that we do for immediate rewards and pleasure, those are controlled by a different part of the brain, although it's very closely connected. It's called the nucleus accumbens, but they're both part of the same larger circuit and they're very deep in the brain. But those like together kind of determine most of our actions. They're either guided by, well, just keep doing what you have been doing or do whatever is immediately pleasurable. And if you just follow those two rules, like you get pretty far. And it's only the more modern parts of our brain, like the prefrontal cortex that humans have relatively more of than any other animal that is like, uh, but what about these long-term goals and plans that I have? And so you, your actions end up getting determined by this conversation between the, the something happens and the dorsal striatum says, Hey, uh, well, let's, let's do it this way. Cause this is the way we always do it and we can feel safe about that. And then the prefrontal cortex is like, uh, yeah, we, we could do it, but like, that's, that's the habits we've been stuck in for the last 10 years and look at the crap we're in now. So then maybe we should try something different. And then the nucleus accumbens chimes in with like, oh, look, there's a cookie. And somewhere in that conversation, your actions get determined. So I would say most of what your brain does, the actions you take, the decisions you make are habits, either routine sort of habits in the dorsal striatum or impulsive habits in the nucleus accumbens. And the interesting thing or one of the interesting things about these deeper regions is they don't make the distinction between good habits and bad habits because what we call bad habits are things that in the long term aren't good for our well-being or survival or whatever and things that are beneficial to us in the long term we would call good habits but the only part of your brain thinking about the long term is the these more newly evolved pieces like the prefrontal cortex that are thinking about your future the stratum evolved to keep you alive now and all habits whether or not we would call them good habits or bad habits benefit us in the short term if they benefit you in the short term and also in the long term great that's a good habit they benefit you in the short term but not in the long term or they hurt you in the long term oh that's a bad habit but the dorsal stratum is just doing it because it benefits you in the short term and i can guarantee you that if you are stuck in some bad habit overeating drinking too much procrastinating whatever it is worrying it benefits you 
in some way, if it didn't benefit you at all, you would quickly stop doing it. And one of the challenges is to understand like, oh, how is this benefiting me? And is there some better way to get that same benefit that doesn't have all of the negative drawbacks that come with overeating or over drinking or procrastinating or whatever. And it's just unfortunate when, when we really have been stuck in a bad habit for a long time and it gets really strongly wired in the dorsal striatum, one of the reasons that we do it, one of the ways that it benefits us is that we do it because it's familiar and comfortable and makes us feel safe, even if in the long term it's harming us. And so we, we do it to feel safe. And if you tried to do something different, you'd be like, no, I'm going to not do that bad habit. Well, that's where your emotional circuitry comes in. And your emotional circuitry freaks out when you're doing new stuff that's potentially dangerous. And that activates the dorsal strain and the habit circuit to try and pull you back into the safer routines that are familiar. And it creates this unfortunate push-pull where if the habits that you're stuck in aren't good for you in the long term or even harming you, well, when you try and break out of them, it stresses you out. And then that pulls you back into the same pattern. So it's, it's a really unfortunate situation, although it's really beneficial for most of our survival and well-being. But in certain circumstances, it's, it's unfortunate. But the good news is that it's possible through, as you mentioned before, through neuroplasticity to rewire some of those circuits and start to change our habits or start to change our response to the environment or situations so that we don't get stuck in the same predictable, unhelpful patterns over and over. I want to go back and highlight something that you said, which is that you listed a few potential bad habits that we could get stuck in, like overeating or over drinking. And you also mentioned worrying. And I want to point out to anybody who's listening that a bad habit doesn't just have to be this physical behavior that you participate in, but it can also be a pattern of thinking like self-judgment, self-animosity, like beating yourself up, rumination, all of those things, the way that we think are habitual patterns as well. And I'm curious if you can maybe share what you think some of the most unhelpful or unproductive patterns, cognitive patterns and habits that you see people getting stuck in. Yeah, I think self-criticism is probably the biggest one. And it's, it's problematic precisely because it's helpful. So as I said, all habits benefit you, but for them, and, and largely just because they're familiar and they make you feel safe, but for them to have gotten programmed into your brain, there usually had to been, have been a time where they helped you more than simply just being familiar because they weren't from always familiar. 
and they benefited you in some way, which got them deeply ingrained in the dorsal striatum, and then your situation changed slightly, and now they are no longer helpful in your new situation, but they, you still do them because your brain is programmed to do them. Or maybe you just did them and they weren't even helpful then. They just didn't create as many problems before, but they became a habit and now they are creating problems, but now they're, they're programmed into your brain. And self-criticism is a really interesting thing because I think for many smart, talented, motivated people, like many of the people, if not all of the people who went to UCLA and a lot of smart, passionate professionals in their working life after, what happens, I think, for a lot of people is that they learn ah, well, if I get a bad grade on a test and I get mad at myself, that motivates me to study more next time or to focus more and stop being you know, distracted by all these things. And that helps me accomplish my goals, which is a helpful strategy if the challenge that you are facing is very manageable it's very small relative to your abilities and your intellect and your drive and all of that. You like a good swift kick in the butt is helpful sometimes to really get you to focus. And so a lot of people learned that was a habit and they, they learn the association I think not necessarily consciously, but they learn the association like, oh, I'm successful because I'm hard on myself. And that's where it starts to become unhelpful because most smart, passionate people are successful despite the fact that they're really hard on themselves. I mean, recognizing that I'm frustrated that I didn't do better on this test and telling myself, oh, I know I could do better because I was so distracted by these other things. Like, oh, great, that can help motivate you to do better on the next test. It just, it's a very nuanced difference between that and be like, you're lazy, stop being so lazy. And those two things get really mixed up together. And so we, we often learn these habits. Those are the habits that people believe got them into a top university or into UCLA, or they believe that that's what got them through college and into their first amazing job. And the problem is that over time, the challenges that you're facing often get bigger and more complicated to the extent that maybe you're almost feeling overwhelmed. But at that point, if you fall back on the old habit of, ah, I just need to get angrier at myself and just work harder and tell myself I'm, I'm a loser, like that'll motivate me. Well, 
then that pushes you past the sort of optimal level of stress. And then you get sort of stuck in this downward spiral where, yeah, the situation you're in is, is stressful and overwhelming. And because of that, you fall back on your old habits. And if your old habit is, ah, I need to get madder at myself and more critical, well, then that stresses you out more, which gets in the way of you just being able to focus. And then but that pushes you back into your old habits of being more critical. And that is really destructive. But we, we fall back into this other unhelpful belief of like, well, so what am I supposed to do? Just give up and accept that I should do a crappy job at everything and then I'm a loser. And it's like, oh, no, that's where like these unfortunate bad habits are sort of stacked on top of each other. We have this often belief that it's bad to be bad at something. And it means you're unworthy if you can't achieve your goals. And it's in, it's in those combination of things that these habits become really problematic. Because if you got mad at yourself for not succeeding, but you believed oh, it's perfectly okay to not succeed, ah, well, then you wouldn't necessarily get stuck in the same downward spiral. It's when you have these multiple unfortunate beliefs where you're like, what's well, bad to be bad at things. And it's, um, you're unworthy of praise or love or connection. If you can't succeed at these things, well, that's great. If you're really talented and you can overcome the challenges and be like, ha, see, I know I'm worthy of love. But then if you encounter some situation that overwhelms your ability to just power through or figure it out on your own, then you get stuck in this downward spiral. And for many people, who and this is one of the, I think is is one of the real tragedies is like for many people who are smart and talented they they don't even believe it of themselves or they see that as a burden and a pressure to be perfect all the time and because of those habits and beliefs it it gets in their their way to be happy and productive Something that I hear from a lot of my clients who are self-proclaimed recovering perfectionists is this overwhelming fear that if they're not criticizing themselves, if they're not judging themselves, if they're not beating themselves up, how will they ever possibly feel motivated to do anything ever again? There's this really intricate belief that that is a core component of motivation and yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and motivation in general, because I also know that this part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, releases a lot of dopamine, which plays a, a critical role in motivation as well. And so I'm curious if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that that's a common belief that being hard on yourself is good and that you shouldn't not be hard on yourself because then, well, why would you accomplish anything? And it is a, it's an unfortunate learned association that comes from probably several places. One, if your parents were hard on themselves, 
then ah, then you just sort of learn that's that's the way to be because just like your parents speak English they may not talk to you very much as they they talk to each other but you just oh your brain is plastic as neuroplasticity and it just gets shaped by the experiences that you have as a child so even if your parents weren't critical of you if they're like very goal-oriented and driven and motivated you into it like oh that's the way that i'm supposed to be and one of the challenges is that you're different from your parents so like they might not have the same challenges that you have but also they're older than you. They have more experience. So like if you try and emulate them, they're a, a writer or an artist or whatever. If you try and emulate them, well, you're not going to be as good at them. And the more that you've sort of internalized this notion like, oh, they're really hard on themselves when things don't go their way. Or sometimes they are hard on you. And maybe because their parents were hard on them and they do say, hey, no, you need to try harder. You need to buckle up. Well, then that's the conversation that you start to internalize. And that's the voice that you end up talking to yourself in. And the reason that your parents likely talk to themselves in that voice and talk to you in that way is because it helps them in some way like they wanted to be a writer and they went through a whole struggle of whatever they were lazy and then they they finally yelled at themselves and then they were able to you know straighten up and and focus and so they were like oh yeah so that's what that was good and then uh, it probably wasn't helpful for them necessarily either but we learn these associations when things can happen at the same time but we make a mistake about the cause so if i am smart and talented and motivated well chances are i will succeed at something and if sometimes occasionally being mad at myself helps me focus. Then my brain's like, oh, oh, that was a really helpful hack. And then we'll keep trying that same thing. In the same way, for some people that like, your brain learns that eating a cookie can sometimes make you feel calmer. Or that drinking a beer can sometimes make you feel less socially awkward and it's not always a problem for people if you have many other positive coping mechanisms for some people you can be really stressed out and you're also hungry and you eat a cookie and then you feel calmer there you go maybe it just satisfied your hunger but it also made you feel calmer and for other people they drink a beer oh, and it reduces their social anxiety. And so their brain learns these quick shortcuts to, to feeling calmer or less anxious or 
even loved sometimes because the the feelings that we get from say eating comfort food are often very similar to the feelings that we get from love and support and they often release a lot of the same chemicals and so your brain's like oh that's the way how i get that and that's sort of the beginnings of some of these bad habits or potential addictions it's just that for most people it's not a problem because you have enough good other habits to support you through that or you don't fall into that bad habit enough for it to be that much of a problem but if your brain sort of learns this connection like oh Oh, that's really good. That's the only way that I can feel safe or successful or productive. Well, then you start to make that habit even, even deeper, and then it can start to create problems. So like when it comes to self-criticism, it kind of only works for people who are capable and talented and smart because that little kick in the butt is enough to help you overcome the hurdle of whatever you're facing. Whereas other people who weren't as smart and capable and talented and supported as you, well, their self-criticism just eventually caused them to crumble and they dropped out of high school or dropped out of college or became a drug addict or whatever. And so you just happened to succeed and you happened to be very critical of yourself. And the better story, the more useful story is to say, oh, you succeeded because you have a lot of inherent abilities and talents and you were supported to nurture those. Oh, yes. And in some very small situations, yes, a little self-criticism sort of helped that, but you overlearn and over-rely on that connection. And now that the challenges that you're facing are bigger and the uncertainty is greater, that habit is slowly killing you or slowly draining your motivation and energy and focus. And if you try, however, to change it, well, it's gonna increase your stress. Why? Because you've been doing it for so long. You're stuck in that groove and any deviation from it is going to activate your stress response and it's going to say just like, you know, a drug addict's brain says, like, I don't care if you're trying to quit. You need to go back and do that same thing. You need to be critical. And the, the unfortunate thing with these like thinking habits is that they can be so fast and automatic that we're not even aware that we are doing them. Like at least with like physical bad habits, it's easier to see when you're doing it or other people can be like, hey, you're doing it again. Well, so this is why another key useful tool is mindfulness, which is simply the ability to be aware of the present moment, including your own thoughts or motivation so you can even notice your own tendency to get stuck in this self-criticism or notice 
the feelings and emotions that come when you instead try to treat yourself with more compassion. And those two things together are often some of the most powerful tools to break out of this cycle. I couldn't agree more. And I want to circle back to something you said before about how when we're trying to deviate from the patterns and habits that we have in place, there's this heightened level of stress and this momentary discomfort. And for me, one of the greatest gifts of mindfulness is that in a more austere meditation practice is the active intentional practice of non-reactivity and being willing to pay attention to and witness discomfort without reacting to it. And I think for me and my, my own experience, it's made the process of changing not only my patterns of thinking, but also my patterns of behavior so much easier because I'm able to bear the discomfort of momentary distress because I know that it'll pass. So I love that you brought that up at the end. Mindfulness is such a big part of my own background and continues to be one of the biggest parts of my daily mental health routine. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's it's a, it's an extremely helpful tool. And the only problem or one of the main problems I have with mindfulness is that whenever we talk about any of these useful tools like mindfulness or self-compassion or what, or just going to therapy and talking about your problems or whatever, like anytime someone's like, ah, this is the one tool, it's the secret, it's going to solve everything. Well, no, there's no tool that's going to solve everything. Just like habits, habits themselves are tools. And even if you have a quote unquote good habit, there's no habit that's always helpful for every situation it's it's helpful used the right way for the right situations so you might have tools and habits that are useful 95 percent of the time or 98 percent of the time but it's really that five percent or two percent of the time that they cause problems where that's where you're getting into trouble and then we have these patterns of thinking and we're like but but it's good good to have it so i should keep doing it and you're like well there's some times where you need to change and this is again one of the challenges of a lot of smart goal-oriented people is they're like oh i just need to understand something before i do it because you shouldn't just do stuff because someone told you to and like yeah that's a great belief or habit to follow except sometimes you don't really fully understand why you need to do something and you yet you need to do it anyway. And that is one of the reasons why I love to talk about the neuroscience because it helps people get out of their own way when you start to see how all of these things are connected to each other and how your brain actually works. Yeah, I don't think that there's any magic pill. There's no secret sauce. It's an amalgamation of so many different things. So Knowing that there's no singular cure, there's no fix all other than maybe extensively studying the upward spiral. Do you have any recommendations just in terms of like a single point of focus or direction that you think would be helpful for anyone and everyone to start paying attention to? Yeah. Well, the I think the most important place to start is this understanding that your brain is not broken 
you are not broken and you don't need to be fixed. Your brain might not be making things as easy for you as you want, or the things that you want to do might not be as automatic, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's just how the human brain works. Your computer might not be doing everything that you want, but you just download a new program and that does what you want. And so downloading that program and installing that new program in your brain is a lot more complex than doing it on a computer. But one of the biggest challenges that prevents people from changing is they believe that they're broken and can't change or that they're broken and even if like it's at least if you believe that you can change that's better than not believing you can change but like the whole time you're still telling yourself i'm broken i'm broken this is bad and you're getting in your own way so just start from the belief there's there's not something quote unquote wrong with you and this is supported by the neuroscience as well which is one of the reasons why i think it's the most important thing to to emphasize first which i start in the book which is like I went to grad school to figure out what's wrong with the brain in depression. And it turns out there's nothing wrong, quote unquote, with the brain in depression. There's no spot that you can point to like, ah, that's where depression is. It's not some chemical that's out of balance. Like, yes, there are a lot of chemicals involved, but it's not like, oh, you're missing some piece or some piece isn't wired correctly. Like we all got the same brain circuits. They're all wired in basically the same way. It's just that there's like a little subtle tuning differences. And so you don't need to fundamentally change who you are. You just need to learn how to like turn down the volume of some of these things a little bit. And that can have a dramatic effect on your experience over the world. So I guess the overall piece is start the assumption that you aren't broken and you just just by making a few small changes you can rewire your brain to change your experience of the world and move towards your valued goals but that's a process of experimentation because nobody else has your brain and your experiences and your unique challenges. So science can tell you, hey, here's the menu of stuff that tends to work for people. Hey, try mindfulness, try exercise, try getting some sunlight, try gratitude, try self-compassion. And it's just that the specific combination of those things and like, oh, well, when should I clarify my goals versus when should I accept that the situation is out of my control or whatever? Like, ah, well, that is an experiment that you have to do on yourself. And that is the experiment of living. Thank you so, so much. I almost got a little choked up as you were speaking. Thank you. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I realized. I love talking about this stuff, but I don't just love talking about it from like the clinical scientific perspective. Like I like talking about it from the perspective that I appreciate it, which is like, oh, this, this combined thing of like, oh, that's so cool about the science. And like, oh, this is so helpful and insightful and motivational for 
myself and my important goals. And so I'm glad, yes, I could share that same perspective with you. I know that everybody who's going to be listening, in addition to myself, is going to be really eager to know where they can learn more about you and what you're doing and how they can continue to learn from you. I'm going to put anything that you share in the show notes so that they'll have really easy links to access it. But could you share a little bit more via audio right now? Just where can we learn more? Yeah, I've really committed to creating more free resources and content to help people. I also have a signature program called the Upward Spiral Method, where people really want to help me be their personal guide through this journey of science and well-being. I'm happy to do that. And but the best place to start is, well, you could start reading the Upward Spiral, which you can find anywhere. It's it's focused on depression, but that was really sort of a marketing choice made by the publisher. It's really about the human brain and how you can rewire it. You can also go to alexcorbphd.com. I have a free guide on uh, positive neuroscience to stopping overthinking so you can get stuff done. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Alex Corb PhD. So if you can remember Alex Corb PhD, either on social media or alexcorbphd.com, then you can find next steps to get some free tools and find out more about your brain and how you can change it. Thank you so, so much for your time today and your wisdom and talking nerdy to me. Honestly, I really appreciate being in the seat of your student once again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast, baby, is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.